listen to the word of God. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed the stars at it rising and have come to pay homage. And when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is shepherd to shepherd my people Israel. When Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared, then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their country by another road. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, through your word proclaimed, may we be open to receive the new gift of wisdom that you always give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm sure you've seen this, but um, it's been posted all over social media. But what if it had been three wise women? Instead of three wise men, well, if it had been three women, they would have, first of all, asked for directions. Secondly, they would have arrived on time. Third, they would have helped deliver the baby. They would have cleaned the stable. They would have made a casserole. And they would have brought gifts that a baby could use. <laughs> so it's, it's. The story of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is, as I mentioned uh, last week, is really the story of Israel. Jesus in the genealogy, we didn't read that, that's in chapter 1 in Matthew, but Jesus is portrayed as the son of Abraham. He is representative of his people. Uh, As the gospel develops, he will become the second Moses as well. So this is very important that Matthew's agenda, Matthew is, it's probably written at the end of the first century, and it's really a debate among Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah and those who don't. So it's really a debate of what true Israel is, and that's reflected in in Matthew's agenda. And we have this unique portrayal of the three magi. Now, we call them kings. Uh, Matthew doesn't call them kings, and that comes from a couple different places. First of all, when followers of Jesus believed that he was the Messiah, that he was the Jewish Messiah, when they went to their scriptures, and their scriptures were what is our Old Testament. They're reading the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, okay? And they saw prophecies all over the place. So this narrative very well could be shaped, if you would, by them seeing different prophecies. For instance, Isaiah 60. The gifts are mentioned in Isaiah 60. 
When Isaiah 60 was written, it was not a messianic prophecy. It was about the idea that now that the people had returned from the exile, that they could be a light unto the nations, remembering the promise to Abraham. Um, where the idea that their king comes from is from Psalm 72. You can take a note of this or you can turn to it. Psalm 72 is what they called an enthronement psalm. The original uh, situation of these psalms where they probably were part of the annual uh, celebration of the kingship of the Davidic king. Okay? After the people lose the king, right? They lose the king after the Babylonians destroy them and there's never a king uh, for any intense purposes on the throne in Jerusalem, at least never an Israeli king, again, a Jewish king, then these psalms become messianic. So Psalm 72 is one of those kingly psalms. And in verse 10, it says this, May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. So when they thought about this passage and they saw the three magi, in Christian tradition and then in Christian art, they become the three kings. So that's where the idea that they come, they are kings. But they weren't kings. They were magi. Now, the word magi, the Greek word magi, is where we get the word magic. Okay? They were, you know, there's a kind of an evolution of what magic were, for magi were. First of all, this is the only positive mention of magi in the New Testament. There are some negative uh, connotations because magi were seen as magicians, uh, as pagans. Okay, so typically, both within Judaism and Christianity, that was frowned upon. Okay, we're not supposed to manipulate the elements of the world. Uh, we're supposed to serve God. So magi have kind of a mixed reputation. Originally, they were court advisors. Um, at the time of the first century, astrology and astronomy had been merged. Okay. Ironically, a couple hundred centuries earlier, a couple hundred years earlier, 200 years or so earlier, people knew they were different. Okay? Astronomy was science. Astrology was a religious um, kind of speculation. right? Uh, but by the time we get to the first century, that, that those ideas had merged. And the Zodiac shows up in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. Matter of fact, the book of Revelation is, has certain kind of markings that point to the, the Zodiac. So it was kind of the way they looked at the world. But the Magi were people who were court advisors. Some of them had been priests in the Persian court. And so these were folks who kind of had a mixed reputation, if you would. Some of them were respected advisors to kings and rulers. Other of them, other of them were kind of charlatans who had their stands. You know, you could go downtown and go to your Magi and get a spell cast on your enemy or your or your business partner, or whatever. So it was kind of an interesting kind of world. So the Magi have a mixed kind of relationship of who they really are. Um, now, where they come from? Well, there are about you know there are three or four theories about where they came from. We only have a little. We only have a few verses in the New Testament about them, but they capture the imagination of the early church. So there's all kinds of literature about the Magi. Some people speculated they came from Arabia because. Uh, of the gifts, the gifts that they bring, frankincense, myrrh, gold, that in the Arabian Peninsula, there was a lot of that uh, kind of thing that was both manufactured, grown, and exported. Because they were astrologers, sometimes they speculated they were from Babylon. Um, that's really where astrology was invented, the, old, the, the, the new Babylonian empire. 
ironically, you know, there were a lot of Jews in Babylon. So some people speculate that these weren't necessarily Gentiles. They were Jews who were practicing Magi. That may be the case. But the majority of the tradition has been that they came from Parthia, which is Persia, which today is Iran. Okay. So uh, Babylon is Iraq, you know, Arabia, and Iran. So our, the biblical story is alive and well in the 21st century. And uh, it's interesting, the oldest church in the Middle East, I've probably mentioned this before, is the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Uh, it is on the spot that people traditionally thought that that's where Jesus was born. There have been religious, we have, we have uh, evidence that people have been making pilgrimages to that site from like 100 AD. So it was a, uh, whether or not it's actually the spot or not, I don't know. But there's a long tradition. Uh, matter of fact, the Emperor Hadrian put a pagan uh, temple at that site to try to discourage, apparently discourage the practice of Christianity. But uh, there was a temple built there by Constantine's mother. It burned down. There was another, the current, not temple, the current church was initially built in the 500s by Justinian. In 615, there was an invasion of Palestine by the Parthians, by the Persians. They were always fighting the Romans. And they invaded and they burned down a lot of the churches. But they did not burn down the Church of the Nativity. That's why it's the oldest uh, church in the Holy Land. And the reason they didn't burn it down, because on the front wall, uh, as you get ready to enter into the church, it had the three magi. And they were portrayed as Zoroastrian Persian priests. So when the commanding officer of the Persians came up upon the temple, he forbid his troops to harm it in honor of the portrayal of their, of their, uh, of their kinsmen. So it's kind of an interesting story. So, you know, if you had to guess, probably Persia is as good as anywhere else. There's actually a second century work that says they're from the land of Shear, descendants of Seth, the third son of Adam. Shear is China. So there's all kinds of really amazing imagination about the three wise men. The other thing about the story is the star. And there's been, there's been ever since actually uh, Galileo, there's been speculation about the star uh, as being one an asteroid. Okay, that was one thing. That, so they tried to somehow figure out, was it an asteroid that came by during that time? Uh, some have uh, thought it was a supernova. Okay. Uh, some have speculated, I think, uh, Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, thought it may have been a supernova. Um, from a scientific perspective, it actually, about the time Jesus was born, Jupiter and Saturn were aligned and Mars was rising. And that would have been a big deal. If you're into that stuff, <laughs> that would have been a really big deal. And that happened about the time of, uh, of the birth of Jesus. But I actually don't think that it's really that important to come up with a natural explanation for it. Okay, it's obviously in some levels a supernatural event, right? Okay, and the wise men were looking for it. Okay? They saw it because they were looking for it. Now I want to tie back into what I was talking to with the guys and Brianna. I said the guys and Brianna. All right. You could be like Brianna in the pits, like I said. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
What's interesting about the story is that, at least as it's portrayed, the star was something that could be observed, okay? They were kind of scientists, at least scientists of their day, and they charted the skies. I've always thought it was very humbling that people in 200 B.C. or in, you know, 6 B.C. know more about astronomy than I do because they really could track the... And, and, and so someday I'm going to take a astronomy for dummies class, all right? I hope they exist. You have a book for that? All right, probably. All right. All right, you get on that, Brianna. All right, you do it, right? Anyway. So, by their observation, we could call that reason, or scientific inquiry, whatever you want to, that brought them to Jerusalem. And I think it's important for us, and I, as I intimated with the guys, that um, we live in a very unfortunate stage, when, or unfortunate time, when there's a lot of Christian rhetoric that is anti-intellectual and anti-scientific. Okay, there's a sense where, and, and I could give you a long, interesting, well, interesting to me lecture, maybe not to you, of how we got here. But the reality of it is, it's a false dichotomy. Okay, uh, Christians do not have to be afraid of honest scientific inquiry. All truth is God's truth. Okay, Jesus died to take away your sins, not to take away your minds. All right, and even though American Christianity has always, Christianity has always had kind of an anti-intellectual bent, it is full-blown anti-intellectual right now, and that's to its to its harm. Okay, and so part of the story reminds us that reason has a very important role to play. Okay, now again, in the history of this debate about this, there are some people who are say that you know reason is an enemy. There's a famous quote by Martin Luther: "Reason is the greatest enemy that faith has." It never comes to the aid of spiritual things. Okay, he didn't really believe that. Okay, he was using it rhetorically. Okay, but unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of people that teach, treat faith, treat religion, treat Christianity as if it's an emotional thing. Okay, that faith has nothing to do with thinking, which is totally wrong. I think Pope John Paul II represents a much more uh, consistent Christian tradition when he said. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth and a word to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. I think that's a more historically accurate Christian approach to the issue of what our reason has given us. Our vision, our reason, our senses have a role to play. Okay? They can get you to Jerusalem, if you will, right? With the, with the wise men. But once they got to Jerusalem, that was not enough. They had to consult with the Holy Scriptures, right? When they asked where the child is to be born, they had to consult the theologians of their day. And that also reminds us that though reason has an important place to play in our journey, ultimately to know truly what God is up to in the universe needs revelation. Okay, In other words, you may be able to look out at nature and use your mind to say, okay, there seems to be a design in this world. Okay, This doesn't seem to be accidental. But you cannot find a loving God in nature. Okay? If you really are honest about what happens in nature, the ways of nature are not necessarily gentle and kind. Right? Okay? Okay, there's a law of cause and effect. 
Okay. Simone Weil called that the realm of gravity. <laughs> what goes up must come down, right? Okay. And those are impersonals, right? They're impersonal forces. And one time, uh, tragic, um, a, a woman lost her brother actually on, on New Year's Eve, and uh, it was a car accident. And she kept saying, "Well, why did he die? Why did he die?" And I said, "The law of centrifugal force." He took a turn way too fast. In other words, that doesn't give you, there's not a scientific explanation for the pain, right? Okay. But gravity is impersonal, okay? Centrifugal force had nothing personally against that young man. He broke the laws of nature, and nature pay, made him pay that night. It's tragic, but that's why that happened, right? Okay. All right. But Revelation tells us that there's another story going on. There's a realm of grace. Okay. We can maybe look out there and not see a loving God, but the Bible tells us there is a loving God. This child came into the world because God so loved the world. You can't get that from reason. You have to turn to God's revelation. And of course, the greatest revelation of God is Jesus himself, right? The revelation of God is Jesus Christ. Elton Trueblood, who I think was a really underestimated thinker, says this. Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservations. Faith isn't blind, but faith is kind of all in, right? Isn't the story of the manger about a bunch of people who are all in? Mary says yes. Joseph gives up his right to his own kind of happiness to help this thing happen. The shepherds drop everything. And these three wise guys travel a long way for something they don't totally know what it is. But they were all in. I think the meaning of the wise men may ultimately be that outsiders are welcome to the table. Generally, the majority of the Christian tradition, and I agree with this, see these guys as Gentiles. Okay, they were from the east, wherever the east was, okay, whether it was Arabia, whether it was Babylon, or whether it was Persia or Parthia, they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. Matter of fact, if you stop and think about the stable, okay, if you, if, you know, we don't have we don't have a I guess we had one at uh, Crossroads had a, a manger scene. But we build our nativity scenes, right? All right, what do you got? You got a you know, you got a pregnant teenager. Okay, you got a carpenter who's away from his hometown, who's kind of displaced, right? You've got shepherds who, in the time of Jesus, shepherds were not allowed to testify in court because they were notorious liars. So you got a bunch of kind of stinky shepherds who were not trusted, and then you got three pagans showing up. The profundity of the nativity the radical message of the nativity is frequently lost on Christians because Jesus is about inviting people in and often the people who are excluded for whatever reason right Right. for God so loved the people just like me for God so loved the cosmos and the nativity is a living example of this. 
There, I told you, I mentioned there's a work from the second or third century. It's, it's an apocryphal work, but it's called The Revelation of the Three Wise Men. And it's like this fantastic story about what happened with these guys. There's 12 of them, okay, all right. And so there, there's actually some traditions where there are 12 of them, but we don't have that many costumes, so we never have 12 at our, uh, and there's only three in Matthew's Gospel. But the star is actually the pre-existent Jesus in this story, okay? So the star starts talking to them at one point, okay? All right, that would be pretty freaky, but the story is, is it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of an allegory, it's a parable. But this is what the star says. This is what the pre-existent Jesus says to the wise men on their way to the manger. I am everywhere because I am a ray of light whose light has shone in this world from the majesty of my Father, who has sent me to fulfill everything that was spoken about me in the entire world and in every land by unspeakable mysteries and to accomplish the commandment of my glorious Father, who by the prophets preached about me to the continuous house in the same way as for you, as befits your faith. It was revealed to you about me. And it was pretty radical. And I, I don't know anything else like this in uh, the early Christian literature. And I've read a good bit of the early Christian literature. What the pre-existent Jesus is saying to the wise men is that God the Father has spoken to you in your own religion and is bringing you to me. Now, that's pretty amazing. Okay? That's a pretty amazing broad statement. This idea that God's truth is a light to all people. Okay? And that part of what got them on the road to see Jesus was something they'd already learned in their own faith. But the thing, the power about this is getting back to this idea that all truth is God's truth. God wants to bring the world to God's self. This table that we will celebrate is not an exclusive place. It is, a, it is a place where we all come broken to be healed. It's a place that Jesus freely gives to those who will come to him. The wise men represent outsiders who are called in to God's family. And that's why we're here. We're supposed to be a place. This building does not exist for ourselves. If it does, then it shouldn't continue to exist. We're to be a light unto the world. We're to be a place where people come and find the living Christ. There's one other thing that, that should not be lost. Matthew is already foreshadowing the death of Jesus in this story. Okay. What happens to Jesus? Jesus is before in Jerusalem, right? And he appears before the ruler and before the high priest and scribes. In other words, Matthew is foreshadowing that the son of Abraham, this new Moses, this embodiment of the people of Israel, will die. The death of the innocent's children will not be the last innocents to die. And so there's a sense where this opening up of God's family, okay, is a costly one. That Jesus takes on the violence and the hate and the prejudice and the racism and the warmongering and the gossiping and the fear and the anxiety and the sin of the whole world upon his body and he dies so that we may all belong to God. 
the myrrh, <laughs> the myrrh reminds us that this king, this priest, will also be sacrificed. But in his sacrifice, we have life. And he is alive. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible.